नमस्ते अदिति नमस्ते नताशा Are we ready to start? Yes, but have you got your cup of chai first? I do, and I do too. Uh, and we are here today with Vijaya Sundaram. Vijaya Sundaram, I I've known her for so many years. She was in college with me, uh, and Vijaya is a teacher. She's an English teacher. Uh, she is a, a published poet and just a, overall a lover of song and words. Well, hello. Yeah. I did not bring my chai. Just pretend I'm holding a holding a cup of chai because I didn't have time to make it. Oh, okay. I do have my chai. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, believe it or not, I've been drinking so much tea that I've had to cut down. So now I just cut down to one cup of good solid Indian masala chai. Oh, yum! You're and making. Mine has a turmeric in it as well. Turmeric and ginger and elaichi. Yeah. I'm going to message my husband right now from this very computer and say, "Please bring me up a cup of masala chai." Because yeah. <laughs> he's so good. He's downstairs. <laughs> okay, so because we have to fulfill your mandate of chai and chat. Of course, yeah. My husband makes. He, he's the he's a chai king in our house. <laughs> What is this? How the heck did you get your husbands to make you to make you the kind of tea? <laughs> no, no, he doesn't make it. Oh, la lesson reh gaya yar. Main tere ko dun kiya. He doesn't make it from scratch. We have a mix. I make it from scratch. Ah. Yeah, I make mine with ginger and cardamom and um um uh, what is this other lemongrass and Ooh, pepper nice. and brown sugar and so oh, good, so good. I know there's a lot about the song and the music but I do want to jump into the words because you're also a teacher you've been a teacher in a public school uh, in Boston Yes for 17 years I taught in a public school in Greater Boston um it's a white wealthy suburb um with okay, the occasional Indian student and the occasional African American student and the occasional student from say Russia or France or you know China or Japan or some of them would have been born here but they were bilingual and so on but most of my students were wealthy white privileged kids so i've considered it my mission to bring the wrath of you know of the underprivileged to them no not really <laughs> no i it was a privilege to teach because the the kids themselves were really nice not all of them were spoiled brats as you would expect many of them were interested in knowing about the world they were sheltered as one would expect if you're from a suburb and but they wanted to know more so I was the the one teacher with the bindi on the forehead and the brown skin and the quote exotic accent uh you know uh, and close quote but they were surprised to know the various facets you know they like I knew rock and roll I knew world music I could quote you know comic books to them and sci-fi and literature and poetry so it was uh, confusing to them they couldn't peg me mm. people like to peg people into you know okay this is an indian woman with the dot on the forehead she must be spiritual oh my goodness please tell me more about your spirituality uh, you know or or if you're not that you must be like this rich you know indian successful person which many indians are who who have uh, you know i careers in either engineering or business or something you know or whatever um or medical sciences and so i was none of those things you know i was just a random sort of anomaly <laughs> so it was interesting to encounter their 
the preconceived notions their parents might have had and the preconceived notions that they had, if any, because they were too young to have too many preconceived notions. But the parents definitely had them. And then when they found that I could speak and do all this, they say, oh, I wish I were in your class and all this kind of flattery, which in the beginning went to my head. And then later I realized it's just the thing that people say. And you just sort of, you know, say, thank you so much. And they meant it, but I didn't, you know, it didn't go to my head, which I'm glad about because, you know, they were sincere and I took it for what it was. And uh, I would have liked to teach them too. The parents were very nice, <laughs> many of them, yeah. Some of them were prejudiced, and you could see it. And mm -hmm. uh, nobody ever likes to be called a racist. Ah. It's like, I don't know why. Why can't they just admit that they are? But no, oh my goodness, it's like saying some terrible word, which I think is silly because I think everybody has some element of racism. Some people act on it, and some people, um, you know, uh, admit it uh, and strive to, be, to go beyond it. I would talk about these things in class. I talked about when I was stopped by a police officer driving back in the dark. And I said to them, you know, he stopped me for no reason. I was driving at speed limit and not crossing any lines. And, but I was driving through your state, your, your uh, town, coming to my town, the next town over. And he stopped me when I reached my town, not while I was in your town. And once he stopped me, I, he came over and shone his flashlight in my face and saw that I was a good Indian woman with a dot on her forehead and a polite voice and said, hello, officer, how may I be? <laughs> was I doing something wrong? Um, and he said, no, ma'am, um, you went over the white line. And I know I didn't, but he had to say something. I said, and he said, have you been drinking? I said, no, I was with my colleagues uh, four hours ago and we went to dinner and I had half a glass of wine. Do you want to test my breath? And he said, no, no, that's it. And they let me go. And I said to them, I was relieved, but I know what he thought. He thought I was black. Right. And uh, he would have wanted to check me for something and make an excuse to, you know, give me some ticket or worse. Mm -hmm. And they said, really? And I said, yeah. But I said, on the other hand, there was another police officer who saved me from a racist man when the racist man bumped into my car. And I had to apologize. And the police guy came after the man went off, after he screamed and threatened me. The policeman came, and or the cop came, and I said, this man called me a blah, 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 and told me to go back to my country. And the cop said, pardon me, ma'am, but that man is a... A-hole. You can scratch that from your thing. And I said, you know, so different kinds of cops. This was a good cop. Right. And I was maybe a good cop. I don't know. Anyway, so it's an interesting thing to, to yeah. be a brown-skinned person teaching English to a lot of white, wealthy, suburban kids who who had no idea what the, the other world was like. Mm -hmm. And so I would teach them uh, the, about the Harlem Renaissance, the civil rights movement, and the inequities that were still going on. I was indignant a lot of the time and I would share these things with my class even though I taught English I would bring in articles and mm -hmm. share things because that's also English yeah and, um, and they would say but but Sundaram which is what they called me but Sundaram you know when we talked about Trayvon Martin and that happened and they said but Sundaram he was wearing a hoodie and he had his hands in his pocket and the guy thought he was I said you what are you wearing and he said oh I'm wearing a hoodie I said so do you carry you know whatever candy in your pocket and a jug of whatever you know when you go down the street they said oh I, I said so what's the story here and mm -hmm. it made them stop and look at themselves mm -hmm. I said so he's five feet whatever he's tall how tall are you oh and I said all you need to do is stop and look at yourself 
and that's and and the kids said, but but the Fox News guys said, don't talk to me about Fox News. <laughs> do not talk. Go to some other source. And they were good enough to do that. It was kind of interesting because they were not prejudiced, but they swallow anything that comes mm. at them. And so you teach them to think and say, you know, go to many sources. Do not just take one thing. Go to your sources. That is so important, right? Because I find I used to do the same thing and I would start to yell at the TV because, right. And and then I decided, you know what, everybody, it doesn't matter if it is one or the other. They're all doing the same thing is trying to keep you hooked on to that that channel, right? Yeah. you just have to shut it, switch it off, and, and yeah, seriously, I, I completely agree. And these are impressionable kids, right? It's yeah, not they'll like, take whatever you tell them, I mean, you know. And it's right. the home environment too, right? It's whatever is being fed to them in that sense. Those same people are polite to me. It's not like they're rude to me, but their instinct is to, to categorize the whole based on one person, you know, mm-hmm. to, to stereotype. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the need to stereotype is there in every human. I mean, I found myself doing it everywhere. I mean, and I, I mean, I would, of course, catch myself because I'm smarter than that. And I, I would like to think I'm better than that, as we all should. But we all catch ourselves stereotyping an entire group based on the actions of one. And not even the actions, the look of one person. Mm-hmm. It may not be black folk or white folk. It might be some other, you know. In well, we do that country. in India, right? India, all the time. All the time. It is shocking sometimes. And now it, it becomes really obvious. Even within your particular whatever Subcast, community, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are, uh, you know, categorizations on, oh, this Got group it. behaves this way. And we do that all the time. And mm-hmm. actually, my kids, my kids will call me out on that a lot. Mm-hmm. Kids are good kids. I mean, the good the good kids out there will change the world. My daughter calls me out if I forget to use the pronoun they or them for someone who is you know gender non-binary, non-binary or gender queer, and I I say I forget. Look, I'm not against anything, but I forget. You have to forgive me. Uh, but you know, sometimes yeah. you just forget. I'm not against it. I, at first, I was. I said, you can't use they and them. Those are plural pronouns. <laughs> <laughs> the English teacher, <laughs> but I was called out on it by many people. If someone wants to be called thus and such, you should let them be called thus. I said, okay, fine, you're right, absolutely right. I will let it go, you know. Yeah. So you mentioned your daughter, and uh, I read and I heard that you homeschooled your daughter. Yes. Could you tell so. us a little bit about your adventures in homeschooling? Sure. So my daughter is Sharada, and um, her name was uh, something that pleased my family a lot because they were worried I might call her Jane or Joan or something. <laughs> I think they didn't say that, but they were very pleased when I used the word Sharada because it's the goddess of learning and music. Um, and there's a lovely song that that goes with her name. So yeah, she is. Um, she's 16 and. One of the reasons why I taught at this privileged public school that was so close to my house was that I thought that both my husband and I thought that we could send her there when she came to be, a, you know, that's, it's a good school. The, we got the best scores in the state or among the best scores because all of us were good teachers and we worked really hard. And so, but when the time came for her to go to after preschool to be of school age, you know, my husband uh, said, I think we should homeschool her. And I, I was 85 to 90% for it because I saw how my students were stressed. Mm-hmm. They were very stressed. And 
they had to get up at an absurd hour in the morning to get to school at 7.30. I mean, nobody can get ready. No normal human, especially not a teenager, can get ready at that hour. Most of us are trained to do it because of our jobs or whatever. But we're grown-ups, so we can, you know, s- s- we can deal with it. I was going to use a more c- vulgar colloquial term. But, uh, you can go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Suck it up! You know, sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but, no... So I saw how they would come to school half awake and, you know, ill-kempt and some of them were not in the best frame of mind. But, you know, I would make them get in the best frame of mind by we'd have a nice check-in in class and we'd have fun. But still, it was hard for them. It was hard for me. Um, we saw that. But apart from that, the amount of um, competition there is among them, which is I never felt when I was growing up. Maybe it was there and I was oblivious. I'm sure it was there. I mean, there are people I know who are competitive but in school. But I don't recall being that way. And I don't recall my friends being that way. And the stress they put on themselves, not even the parents. Like, it's easy to blame parents, but the kids look at each other and they stress each other out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw that. And there were some cool out, um, you know, out kids uh, who were were invariably like the kinds of kids who would have been homeschooled, homeschooled, homeschooled. (laughs) That sounds wrong. (laughs) Uh, They would have been homeschooled, but they went to public school. And those were the really cool Putre kids who were, you know, chill and who came to my drama club after school and the green team, which was the ecological team, which I ran. And they would come to, um, they would come to things like that. But if they had had a choice, they would have been homeschooled. They were the same kind of offbeat kids. Mm-hmm. with music and poetry and so anyway I looked at them and I, I saw that they themselves struggled to stay out of the fray of all of this so when my husband said let's homeschool her I said well I'm for it as long as we can find a community for her I, I do not want her to feel isolated and that's on you I can't do it I'm teaching full time so you find the community I will do the teaching part at home any other things but I don't have the time to go out and do you know take her to this and that um, whatever meeting or group event there is. And so he said, yeah, I'll do that. So he did. And he did his part. And um, as time went on, um, it was clear. I mean, the homeschool friends would form little groups. And there weren't many her age at that time. Now there are more. Mm-hmm. And so she had maybe two friends or three friends who were like her. And they would form their own little drama club or go to uh, a farm and do farm things with other homeschoolers or, you know, cute things, music and math, which my husband would teach to homeschoolers. And that was a big group and so on and so forth. And they would join homeschool circus or it wasn't homeschool circus, but there was a circus, open air circus. And she learned stilting and uh, unicycling and juggling and things like she was not good at juggling, but she was really good at unicycling and stilting. Wow. uh, She didn't have time in juggling and not that much. So they do things like that, hula hooping. So she did all all kinds of fun things, but she was going to be 10. And I thought to myself, and I was getting stressed out at school. And I didn't want her 10 through her preteen through teen years to be without her mother. And I was spending a lot of time teaching, grading, stressing out over my students, worrying about them, because you can't be a teacher unless you worry about the students. But you worry too much, you get burned out. And my department head would tell me, Vijay, you got to pace yourself, you know, you might burn out. And she was right. I gave my hundred and plus percent all to everything. I mean, there's no such thing as 110%, but if there is, then I gave that to my students. And also I'd come home and read to her and give her little assignments and 
I would read her these books, you know, I'd read a Harry Potter at a very young age, um, but but not all the books, the first book, and then mm-hmm. I wanted her to hear it in my voice. I read her these little children's books from when she was very tiny and wrote down her poems and her stories when she would say them to me and, you know, write out in my own handwriting so that she could trace it, all the letters and numbers and taught her. I taught her elementary mathematics and my husband taught her, you know, pre-algebra stuff and number line theory and, you know, fun things. And he would do woodworking with her downstairs in our basement and they built things together. And so she had a good experience, but I wanted her to have more and I wanted to not miss any of it. So I, and I was getting stressed out at school by then. And I said, okay, I don't want to get to a point where I'm so burned out that I hate my students. So I better stop while I'm at it, while I'm okay. So I stopped. And uh, by then they were going to have common core in schools and that seemed like a good reason to stop. I didn't want to do common core and I didn't want to be a hypocrite teaching it to my students while I hated it. And so I said to my students, you know, you folks should resist it. I can't, I'm your public school teacher. I'm part of the establishment. I can't resist it, you should. And they said, what, what, we, and you know how they are. If everybody's doing it, they're going to do it. So right. they, don't, they don't know about resisting anything at that age. Right. Right. So I quit so teaching. So that's when you quit teaching. I quit teaching when my daughter was 10. Now, then you began teaching someplace else. Right. Uh, teaching homeschoolers. Ah. Uh-huh. So I started, first I started with homeschool drama club. Then I went on to homeschool poetry club. And that became a hit. And now there are homeschool groups. You can post your things online and people join mm-hmm. As a non-school teacher among you lot, this is very different uh, from what I... So, you know, you, the normal feeling when uh, about a homeschool kid is you have this uh, vision of this child sitting alone yeah. and, and learning. But that's yeah. not what you're talking about. Yeah, a lot of people think of homeschooling as a solitary activity. And, you know, back in the day when there weren't communities, sure... Um, It was a solitary activity and it depended on the parent. Now, if you're a highly Christian, religious type, then then you and those are the people who give homeschooling a a, a bad name. And but there are many kinds of homeschoolers. And even now, there are the crazy, you know, creationist parents who keep their children at home and tell them there's no such thing as evolution and you can't have you contaminated with science or whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, those are, there are groups like that. And then there are the ultra-religious atheist homeschooling parents who, that's another group. And then there's something in the middle. And there are people who just, you know, will coincide in various places, depending on what you teach. Yeah, one of the other preconceived, uh, I guess, notions of uh, of uh, homeschooling is that the child kind of becomes very sheltered, as you say, because... Uh, I mean, they kind of bypass the, the sort of the rigors of school, you know, friends, in and out of friendship. Sometimes those hard knocks in school actually build your character. Do you think that uh, kids who are homeschooled kind of miss out on that? Well, I do and I don't. I, at first I thought, oh, no, she's missing out on all this. And I thought, well, did those things actually benefit me or did they make me mad? Right. You know, and so in the end, I think as everything is, everything is its own unique experience. And uh, my husband has taught many homeschool students as a music teacher in college. Uh, He teaches at New England Conservatory. He said the homeschoolers were the most self-motivated and the most engaged and the least phased by things that were thrown Mm -hmm. at them. Whereas kids who had gone to school were more motivated by the need to achieve but not learn as much, you know. So there was that. I've been teaching literature and poetry 
and I have between six to eight students and that's the most I can take I can't take more uh, and they all join me on zoom they used to come to the house before and they are so beautiful all these kids girls and boys all teens they support each other they love each other's writing nobody has something negative to say no one feels threatened by anyone else and when something is really wonderful they acknowledge it with each other and they love the discussions we have we've uh, so I've read uh, Great Expectations, Jane Eyre, Pride and Prejudice, <clears throat> Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, um, Oscar Wilde's all his short stories, but we haven't done Dorian Gray yet. Uh, we've done G.K. Chesterton's uh, The Man Who Was Thursday. We've read, oh my God, we've read so many books, I can't even keep track. And, all, and Shakespeare, two Shakespeare's, and a lot of poetry. And we've done all that. And I want to give them the same experience that high schoolers would have without the crowded classes and the stress you know so yeah. so I have a question uh, you mentioned all these authors and uh, you know we covered a lot of these in our Indian schools when we were in India do you cover any Indian authors or do you do any cultural stuff yes a uh, great question so I haven't come to Indian authors for the classics because I called it the classics course but when I come to the 20th century I plan to do a few Indian authors but some of them are young and some of these Indian authors and African American authors have topics in them that I'm not sure, you know, like I don't know, like suppose I were to do Kiran Desai or if I were to do um, uh, Arundhati Roy, mm -hmm. that I would love to and that's such a great question. But Arundhati Roy is, she breaks my heart, you know, so, and they're kind of like so raw, I, I have to think about like how I'm going to teach Arundhati Roy or how I'm going to teach um, my favorite Jumpa Lahiri, whom I really love. Okay. Uh, I, I could do a short story, so thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. But right now I call it the classics, which has drawn a certain group. So the next, I want to do science fiction, I want to do African American and world authors, including Chimamanda and Gozin Adichie. Yes. So I want to bring some of those writers in. So that's the next batch. Good. Yeah. So Jumpa is still like she's still caught between two cultures, like which is like us, you know, a lot of us and our experiences. Yeah. But I was wondering more like say the Indian classics, you know. Oh, uh, like Mahabharata and Ramayana. That's Kalidas. Oh. Like, do you ever think of it? Great idea. <laughs> it's such a great idea. I have not thought of it because I Sharda steeped in all the Amarchitra Katas. I have it right there across from me. I bought every everything I could lay my hands on. So she is acquainted with it. But I haven't thought Ramayana. I could. But I need a good translation. So if you have a recommendation... I could offer that. I as well. have a translation. I'll uh, maybe I can text it to you later. Have you thought of doing these classes for adults? Actually, I, that was my next question. <laughs> I would love to. I haven't. I haven't thought of it. I never thought of doing it for grown-ups. I always think of doing it for kids because kids are in that stage of life. But sure, if you yeah. would like, I would. I'll have to plan it. I'll have. Let me think of it uh, and yeah. maybe start the end of this year or next year. I might. Oh, I'm in. Thank you. That's thank you for the encouragement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. So yeah. these kids and they they just finished a, um, a homeschooled um, production of The Tempest, which ended yesterday. Which is why I wanted to do this today because I was driving her here and there, so I didn't have time to do a podcast. I'm like, where are our children's chauffeurs? Yes, drivers. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I do have to say one thing. I love the fact that you're doing other Shakespearean uh, uh, plays because I'm, I, I'm always like, I always wonder why 
the curriculum says Romeo and Juliet. Always, I hate Romeo. I hate Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> and literally, I mean, all, both of us, we've done, you know, we've done oh. Midsummer Night Dream, which is, you know, a little flaky but cute. cute. Yeah. But we did like Julius Caesar. I love Merchant. Yeah, Merchant of It's my my most favorite. Yeah. And and to think that these kids are getting their first look at Shakespeare through Romeo and Juliet really and they they just yawn right through the class so (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to talk a little bit about you know this creative well that that you have that you you play music you sing you create you write songs and then you also are a are a published poet you are constantly um, uh, uh, creating where do you get this inspiration from? What, what, what's your muse? What drives you? Mm-hmm. I don't know how to answer that question. Notice how much I talked about homeschooling. That's easier to <laughs> answer than something about myself, which is really interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, what yeah. drives me? Uh, when I was young, to go back to the very beginning, I hated words. Mm. I hated language. I absolutely refused to learn the alphabet. I, in the class of, I don't know how many students, in those days, you know, we, we were crammed into big classes. Call it 30 students in kindergarten or first grade. I was, out of 30 students, I was numbered, ranked number 30. I was bottom of the class. My mom, I refused to write. I could not make sense out of it because I was this kid who climbed trees like Maria von Trapp, scraped her trees. I would scream and shout and play and run around. And I stuck, I was always climbing these tamarind trees in Pune. I grew up in Pune. And oh, then went to Madras, and, and then, then came, came back. back. Yeah. Okay. So I, w- I would speak Marathi and Hindi and Tamil and English, and so my Marathi was good in those days. I don't remember anything now, but when till I was eight, I know I, I went. To, I would speak in Marathi with my friends, which is really odd. So um, there were the, we were lived in Erindavane, and that time it was mainly forest and a few flats. Mm. Uh, now it's completely, you know, horrible. Un- horrible. Unthinkable. I loved climbing those huge tamarind trees and picking up the green tamarinds and sucking on them. Oh, they were so tasty. I still remember. And then there were these wells that were right at the very level of the soil. They were giant wells. Uh, in my mind, they were giant. Maybe they weren't that big. Now, I mean, you look back and yeah, when you're a everything. kid, everything looks huge. But it was big and they had steps leading down and they were, they were filled with scummy water. And these were wild wells. It must have been dug during Shivaji's time or something. They were ancient wells and I remember those. And I don't know how our parents let us wander around. Anyway, I refused to learn. So my mom said, no child of mine is going to be bottom of the class in, in Tamil. And she, she sat, she gave me a couple of tight slaps in those days. It was not a big deal. And I didn't, you know, I didn't take it badly. My mom ref- says, no, I never slapped you because, you know, memory is weird for, for grown-ups. But I know she slapped me because I still remember it. Uh, but, she, but I didn't think of it. Like, it wasn't like, oh, I'm being beaten up by my mother. None of that stuff. It was just my mom. That she loves me and she gave me a couple of disciplinary slaps, which I assumed was okay and she sat with me day in and day out and said practice your writing and my hand was not good and my hand would go and my A's were terrible I still cringe when I think about how bad my handwriting was and still is but um, suddenly and I don't know and I'm as a teacher I say this we don't actually ever teach anyone we can only show them the way Um, because I don't remember her teaching me but because of her I learned 
Do you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, so I, suddenly I cracked the code mm-hmm. where it made no sense A, B and C I said why is it look why does it look like this and I have to make that sound mm-hmm. it didn't make sense to me I have to say A but it doesn't look like an A it looks like a pointy hat you know sitting down on the, on the floor or something and suddenly I cracked the code and nobody ever tells students that that is just the way it is yeah nobody ever just says one plus one is two because that's how we determined it to be and everything flows from there. Or A looks like this in this language because that's why we decided. We mm-hmm. all agreed on it and that's what is supposed to rep- you know, represent that sound. And these are the words that look like this which we agree on and therefore they mean this. Yeah. No one says that to kids. And so kids resist because they don't understand why the sound is supposed to match that weird looking thing on the page. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky because I cracked the code or broke the code of learning mm. at an earlier age than some of the students I've taught. Okay. And I, I remember how painful it was for me to learn and how terrifying it was. And suddenly I became really smart and suddenly I was top of the class and I, could, I was always number one or whatever it was. And I realized it's nothing, it's just a trick. All learning is cracking a certain kind of code and if you get to it early you're lucky mm. some people never get to it because maybe it by the time they would have gotten to it they had been frightened of it or hated it or i'm talking about those in the normal range of intelligence who don't learn so anyway so then i loved language and then i found i could write and then i started writing and i started writing i'm coming to your question and i started <laughs> writing stories and by the time I was in eighth grade, I had a lovely teacher who saw my writing and saw me as a person. And she said, you write beautifully. And she turned me on to, I said, oh yeah, I'm a writer. All you need is someone to recognize that. Yes. I had a seventh grade nun who, who opened me up to poetry, William Wordsworth. William Wordsworth was my first love. Mm-hmm. Because of them, I fell in love. I was already in love with it, but because of the encouragement, I thought I was a writer. You know? mm-hmm. And that self-determination um, of who you are, your identity, that's so important, right? As a young child, it's like, I'm a writer. And then you just go down that path. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm a musician. Or, yeah. And for you, those paths were intertwined as well. They right? were. And I was always a singer, so I didn't think of it as something I should be. Like, it wasn't a path. It was already a singer. And I already taught myself guitar and sitar. But writing... I came to it through difficulty. It wasn't something that came easily. And suddenly it became really easy. And, and I, when I was 10, I read the complete works of Oscar Wilde. And by 12, I'd read the complete works of uh, many other writers uh, of, class, of the classics. Mm-hmm. And so then I wrote so much. And some of it was absolute crap. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was beautiful. And so, you know, I was like, yay, this is so beautiful. I'm so full of words. Yes, I'm the best. Then later you look at it and you say, this is absolute crap. I can't believe it. When you go back and uh, read uh, uh, your earlier works, does that give you a glimpse into the person you were at that time? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, it gave me a glimpse and I remembered saying to myself, I should not live if I don't write. Mm. Writing was living and breathing. And mm. then at some point that became slightly secondary when I had to earn a living you know, become a teacher. And teaching was a calling and writing was a calling, but when, you can't do all of it. So when I was a teacher, I was full-time teaching. 
it was very hard to do writing. And when I was a musician, I was a, I was doing music a lot. So I'm I'm a serialist. I I and now I'm trying to combine all of it. So I went from writing to being a performing musician of guitar, sitar, and voice, and I did Hindustani as well. To teaching once I became a, a, qual- a certified teacher, which is completely an absorbing profession, and it really is a calling. You can't be a teacher and you say, "Oh, hum, I'm going to go do my job and come home." You cannot right. do that. Mm-hmm. And then I'm back to being a writer because once I quit teaching, I said, "I have this other calling that I haven't paid attention to." So I'm, so I've been t- writing a lot of poetry again over the last six years, and finally I got it together to. Share something with someone who said you should. I'm going to introduce you to this publisher, and her name is Gloria Mindock, and she runs Sarvana Barva f- Press in Somerville, Massachusetts. And he shared my work with her, and she said, "I love this work, please." So I didn't approach anybody, and someone approached me. So that's nice. Mm-hmm. Would you read something for us? Oh, okay. Um, okay. The most recent one was yesterday. It's called "Give the Finger." which is kind of rude and never really given rude poetry before give the finger okay um <laughs> my husband used to laugh at me because when i drove in in boston the boston area and people used to cut me off and were rude to me i cursed under my breath uh, because i couldn't curse out loud and then i would literally <laughs> i was so shamefaced i would give them the finger under the dashboard <laughs> my husband i came home and i said hey i gave somebody the finger under the dashboard and he started laughing <laughs> like nobody can see it <laughs> sometimes that's all you need is to feel better but this is giving the finger to death really so give the finger ah every day is your last day or your first day it all depends on when things end or begin a friend died in april a student died last november another student lost his brother killed by libyan kidnappers the mother of a friend in december grandmothers fathers mothers aunts brothers sisters friends dying everywhere every hour every minute i feel their end at times often feel the sudden punch in the air when someone is punched out so many hole punches so many interstices light poking through thin paper so many stories gone so much pain over so hopelessly human we are so invested in living on so intrigued by the idea of avatars so incensed by endings i want to know the end yet what point is there to it if we are the writers of our lives and we are being written as well our hands are an eternal loop start to finish we write then vanish as we work the end almost someone else closes the book right how unsettling to be closed how painful while we near the end i shall remind myself of all this as the music dies as the light dims and the inner fist closes tightly upon my gasping heart perhaps it will make me smile as i give the finger to the writing hand and i'll pull the curtain down on that last day my first forever beautiful thank you very wow. nice i love the <laughs> the lights shining through the paper yeah all analogy of the stage and the lights dimming right, and the curtain right. coming down right. oh right. the idea of death has been on my mind as it has on probably many of our minds as we reach this other half of our life you know and it's closer and closer i mean it's just there i mean we know when you're young you feel invincible and even if you might suddenly pop off the next day you feel invincible so that's the difference 
And I, I think of death a lot. I'm not scared of it, but I want to prepare. I want to have time to prepare. You know, I want to put my, put my papers in order, burn anything that no one should see, you know, fold all my clothes, you know, toss anything my daughter shouldn't have to deal with and all these things because I have one kid and I want to, you know, leave her stress-free. And I think, okay, and then make your exit as peacefully and calmly as possible. Vijaya, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. I hope you continue to write and make music and Thank teach. You. I hope the muse never leaves you. Thank um, you. Actually, can I read a poem that's not about death? Yes, please. Let's okay, go out on a on yeah. a high note. Yes. Okay. Let's. Yeah. Because I realize. Oh my God! I don't want to stop on a note like that. Let's see. All right. I will. I will use this one. Ruby song. I crave rubies in my throat so I can sing like a clarinet. The pomegranate in my fridge is tired. I regard it with fondness, my partner in innovation. Its redness is beyond the price of rubies. It calls to me coldly like a clarion, a question shaping its urgent need. Somewhere else a beat sings of redness too. Far beyond my ken, I'm sure of it, but it sings a darker red, a somber passion. I will seek it at some other point. I have need of clarity, coldness, red fire, and this other pressing matter at hand, my pomegranate, which has but one purpose, since its other purpose was abrupted when it was cut down from the mother tree. I will call, answer its call, but not now. Tomorrow I shall cut into it, inhale its weary fragrance, suck its tart juices. The pomegranate will bleed in delight and die on my tongue, and I will sing with the voice like rubies. Ah. Wow. Thank you. Voice <laughs> like rubies. Beautiful. Well, this was so wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Natasha. Lovely to meet you. And thank you, Aditi. It was lovely to see you again. And a real pleasure to be on this podcast with both of you. Thank you. Thank you.